yun yung pinakamahalaga talaga. Yung pakiramdam natin na ginagawa natin yung tama at ginagawa natin na hindi lang para sa pangsarili lang natin. It's important to get every side of the story, but even more important to allow a much bigger space for those who have much less. There were bodies of, of dead women, you know. Uh, they were still wearing their usual um, Muslim garb, Muslim clothing. You know, they had their headscarves. They were shot, and their faces were uh, they were face down in the mud. Little by little, over the years, your story, your personal convictions, are made up of all the stories and people you have encountered over the last, for me, for example, 10, 13 years. So when you don't know where I have to be, I found that the answer is. I have to be in the Philippines because I'm most needed here. That was Jamela Alindogan, and you're listening to The Wildcast. Welcome to episode 19 of The Wildcast, and my name is JP Alipio. Thank you for listening. We're here to talk to some extraordinary people. And this week on episode 19 of The Wildcast, I talked to an amazing, amazing person, an amazing journalist, Jamela Alindogan, about her life, about her struggles, about what she's afraid of. And it's a really, really fruitful conversation with her where we talk about everything from Marawi to interviewing Nur Miswari, um, the loves of her life, and the difficulties she's gone through as... A journalist in this time, in this time of pandemic and in this time of the current politics of the Philippines. She has been a journalist with Al Jazeera for more than a decade and an award-winning journalist at that. Over the last few years, she started a project, a humanitarian project in Marawi with the women of Marawi called Sinagtala where she has helped so many women get past the death and destruction they have all experienced. And today, she's the president of the Foreign Correspondents of the Philippines. A big, big responsibility, especially in this time. And she calls it an act of defiance. And really, very much, this is such an inspiring thing. I say this every episode for those who have listened to this podcast all the time I leave each episode and every time I edit it inspired by all the people I talk to and I hope you get the same feeling from all of these people who I've had over the podcast over the last five months so thank you very much for everyone who's listened to the wildcast and have a listen to Jamela Alindogan this is her story all right, so thank you very much for coming on the Wildcast. You're one of my first 20 guests on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, uh, mostly most of the people on the podcast have been my friends. Uh, I'm blessed to have interesting friends. And of course, you included, no? Um, maybe can you tell me a little bit of something about yourself? Not Not all of my listeners know who... The amazing Jamela Alindogan is. <laughs> Thank you for having me and uh, as your guest. And so you know, this is possibly my first podcast guesting ever. So, um, oh wow! Uh, 
Yes, so I'm quite happy to be here. And especially we, both of us, we have a lot in common. We both love nature. We both know our special places uh, up in the north. And, um, and um, you know, and, and, and we knew a lot of common friends even before. So um, to those who are listening, my name is Jamela. I am a journalist. I've been working for Al Jazeera English for more than 12 years. And I think it's about my... And the month is uh, March. This actually, this actually is my 13th year already uh, with Al Jazeera. I work as a correspondent and I cover most of the Philippines, all of the stories coming out of the Philippines. And occasionally I also do um, Southeast Asian countries, other Southeast Asian countries uh, when deployed on assignment. Um, I was... Um, Working as a as an, a reporter for ABS-CBN in the past, I did one year for TV Patrol and Bandila, and I also um, mm -hmm. anchored for ANC for a while. Previously, of course, if we go way back, <laughs> um, I was a sportscaster for the UAP uh -huh. in. 2002, 2003. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see that in my research. <laughs> well, thank God that was way before You're YouTube. You're one of those court, court girls. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was a courtside reporter for FEU. And, um, you know, JP, that was when it was the back to back championship of FEU, no? So um, that mm. was when uh, initially was against, I think, LaSalle and Ateneo. So it was what they call also the Holy War. It was the Banal brothers, Koi Banal versus Joel Banal. So it was really quite memorable. That was way before I joined News. So that was my, my really my first mm -hmm. television stint was when I was in university. And then a few oh, years okay. ago, I, I co-founded an NGO um, called Sinagtala Center for Women and Children in Conflict. And what we do is we provide safe spaces and aid to women and children in conflict zones, in particular in conflict zones and difficult areas in Mindanao. So we've done work in Marawi, we've done Basilan and and Sulu, supposedly, but this lockdown happened, so that has been postponed indefinitely. So that's it, basically. Wow, that's, I, I mean, that's quite a lot on your plate. Right? Yes, wait, I forgot <laughs> to say that I'm currently president of the Foreign Correspondents Association of the Philippines at the moment for a year. So this is my second stint. So... Um, so there, that's basically what I do. And I'm a mom. Uh, personally, I've, I'm married and I, am, uh, I have a five-year-old son, who, someone I absolutely adore, who inspires me to do the work that I do almost all the time. So there. Wow. I, you do so many things. But how do you even prioritize all of these things? I mean, you founded an NGO. You're, you're mm. a journalist. You... You 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 mm. basically you're jet setting all over the country, all over Southeast Asia. How do you even balance all of that? Uh, you know, you know. First of all, that the idea of balance is um, difficult to achieve. I mean, you can't possibly have balance. A lot of mothers are expected to have the work life balance, and even for dads, right? But in reality, is that it's it's really unrealistic because. There is a time when work takes up a majority of your time and there is a time when you have to stop working and make family a priority, you know? At some point, that's just the way it is mm -hmm. for women who have to work, for parents who have to earn a living, for those who do what they do, uh, for many reasons and even uh, for the country. It's very hard sometimes to find that work balance. Um, 
I did have a, you know, long uh, experience when it comes to multitasking. You know, I started as a, as a, um, a working student for uh, several restaurants and fast food chains. So I won't mention the lang. Oh, really? Which, which ones? In university. But I did. So anyway, to, re- to recap, I, I worked as a, I w- was always a working student. So I kind of knew already how to okay. manage my time. And, you know, even mm-hmm. courtside reporting was a job as well, which I had to manage. So, you know, life-work balance is sometimes very difficult to achieve for many people. And it's just a matter of knowing when to stop, when to take care of your health, when to shut down everything, uh, cut out the noise, and just focus on one thing. So I'm quite good at, I guess, focusing on one particular task, even if everything around me is quite messy and noisy and volatile. You know, I think it's also my training in journalism where I can write even if there's, you know, bullets or tanks or cries for help or, you know, in a devastation with a very short a period within a very short period so i guess that's i think that's that's like a very special skill isn't it to be able to actually do all that like just zone out and work while there's bullets and tanks and explosions and all of that mm. yeah i guess but it does take its toll you know it's not something that well of course a lot of journalists do that and and not just journalists you know humanitarian workers are also subjected to the same kind of working uh, situation, uh, state forces, soldiers, rebels, you know, and they all have to function when you are in a situation like that. But, you know, and, and just to tell you ahead, you know, the, the term war correspondent, it's something that I don't really, um, not that I hate it, but I don't particularly like it as well, simply because I think the concept of war correspondence or war reporting means that we advocate for war. You know what I mean? When the idea of journalism is to humanize war, to show how affected and how it impacts people's lives, both both for the good, I guess, if there is any, and for the and, and for bad or, or for worse. So, okay, just going back to what I said earlier, um, a lot of people are also subjected to that particular situation that I go through when when working, and and others go through worse. You know, I mean. Civilians who have to flee um, their homes and look for shelter and refuge somewhere else. That requires a lot of focus, a lot of strength, and, and, and courage to do that. So um, mm-hmm. in conflict areas, there are many players. And often as journalists, we've learned how to observe, keep our emotions in check while we're writing our stories, and then just deal with all of that afterwards. In the Philippines, you're one of a, a number of women who are essentially on the front lines as journalists. And how difficult is that? I think we have quite a few like you, Charles Zembrano, and a few others mm. who are on the front lines. And how difficult is it to be like a woman out there when normally this is seen as sort of a man's job? I mean, typically. But you've, of course, you've proven that wrong, no? Well, you know... It's just that a lot of people may find it unusual. Like um, sometimes previously, um, I would be in a place, maybe a rebel-held area, and I would probably be one 
of the two women in that in that in that particular camp, for example, I won't mention which camp, for example, in in Mindanao. And the, a lot of people on the ground, most likely at first, would find it unusual. Locals would find it unusual that I would be transplanted in the mid in the middle of nowhere, uh, speaking a language that, you know, for example, in many many areas in Mindanao is an outsider's language, Filipino, Tagalog, English. You know, it is not their language. It is not, you know, so. But then again, very, very quickly, that feeling of, of, of strangeness and difference, um, I think, is replaced by a sense of comfort. I think that a lot of people think that being a female journalist is basically a disadvantage. I actually don't think so. I think that a lot of people in the field, people tend to trust women more, you know, and people tend to trust mm-hmm. women more uh, of their stories, and they tend to be more... Um, open when they see a woman, ask them about uh, what they're going through. And the most difficult part about it is that you arrive uh, somewhere at, at, at the worst time for many people, the worst time for these people. And the last thing that they want is to feel as though they are oppressed and they, you don't want them to feel defensive about uh, their situation, about the questions you're asking. So very, very quickly, JP, as a journalist, you need to be able to make that kind of connection very quickly, that they feel comfortable um, with you, that they know that you are not a threat, that you are not um, a partisan uh, force arriving there, that you are simply there to listen and to give them a platform. And you know what they say, giving voice to the voiceless and challenging established perceptions. That's so important. And um, and that's, you know, necessary that you make that connection immediately. And so that's that, I think, works for me because I'm a woman. And I think even more so when I became a mom, you know, every single boy or girl in a disaster area or conflict area is my son or my daughter because I see a child and I am immediately reminded of my own child I left behind uh, to do this work. So that's mm-hmm. important to me, make that connect- connection immediately. And then second, to get their story right, because the minute they trust you, you are probably most likely at that moment, they're only linked to the outside world for many reasons, and you need to get their story right, JP, you know, down to the spelling of their names Mm -hmm. and to give their story dignity, that you give the best accurate picture and that they get as much space or if not more of in your, on your platform, in your stories, in your broadcast, because giving voice to the Mm -hmm. voice voiceless compared to giving voice to politicians who already have their own platform, who already have their own capabilities. So this is our job as journalists to really look and challenge established perceptions and to provide a platform for those who normally won't have access to information. Wow. And this is something something of both a job and sort of an advocacy for you, no? And and being a journalist, being the president of FOCAP, and covering all of these stories, for many of these stories that you've covered, like especially in Mindanao, a lot of these stories won't even come out if not for your work. You know, um, mm. which of these assignments that you've done has really struck you and like made a difference in your life? What do you do? You have a particular assignment you would say uh, really st- stood out in all of those many assignments that you've done. Um, it's, it's very hard because I always think that first 
every single story you do becomes a part of you as well in the end. That even if you do their, you tell their stories, you write down their names, their stories get published, and you walk away physically from where they were, from their location, and go back to the comforts of your home, you bring a part of them with you. Do you know, by, do you know what I mean? And little by little over the years, your story, your personal convictions are made up of all the stories and people you have encountered over the last, for me, for example, 10, 13 years. So there, you, I cannot simply say, oh, this story alone. There's so many. But let me give you two examples uh, um, of, of, of coverage, both in Mindanao, that really kind of um, made me feel out of my own personal space, you know, like completely, and sorry, like that it was kind of an out-of-body experience, you know, sometimes, you know, you have that kind of feeling, right? Um, one, I did a story on, on uh, uh, um, Nurmis Wari. I, I did an interview with uh, the, more, the founder of the, of the Moore Rebellion, essentially who's seen as the founder of Moore Rebe- Rebellion, um, Nur Miswari, or commonly known in Sulu or in Mindanao as Maas, or the father, or commonly known as Maas. I'll just keep it at that. You know, interesting anecdote. My aunt, my my brother's sister, was classmates mm. with Nur Miswari in college. So, oh, really? What's his name? Yeah. Uh, What's Georgina. His name? Uh, uh, my, my, my aunt's name is uh, Georgina Alipio, basically. So, mm. <laughs> she was classmates yeah. with him. In college, way, 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 way back then. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So you know when this was so twenty sixteen. Yeah. So this was twenty sixteen, and uh, this is like three more than three years after the siege in Zamboanga. So um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Nor had been in hiding for over three years, and no one had seen him. And everybody knew where he was. He was in Sulu. He was in Camp Dragon. Um, in Indanan, but it's an area that is very difficult to go to, and um, and and because of security and because of many things, right? So there was some sort of not really a truce, but the kind of a temporary agreement at that time in the absence of whatever that the government could come up with, and so I managed to go somehow to um, to Normizuari's camp and interview him, and. To make the long story short, basically, it was very, very difficult to go in and very difficult to actually leave the, the area, you know, um, um, mm-hmm. because of so many challenges, you know, that, that these areas are kind of um, not too far away from the Abu Sayyaf camps, right? There are several in those areas. And it, it is a place that is considered a no-go zone for journalists, especially during election season. So I went there during election se- season. So tensions are quite high. You know, that was also when I think there was a Canadian uh, captive that was uh, being threatened to be decapitated by the ASG, and they were just really, literally, on the other side of the mountain, not too far away from where it was. So I think that was difficult. Um, it took me three days, uh, two days to go there, and another maybe day to get to get out. All in all, and um, and I barely ate, I barely slept, 
I was um, very much heightened by the sense of danger, and and I managed to manage to come back and fly back to Manila. But it only occurred to me when I finally got home that I had very very close calls there, very close calls, meaning very close calls to getting um, kidnapped and also getting stopped by state forces from pursuing. Because you know when I went there, um, there was this. Uh, intention for state forces and I just won't mention which you know units to stop me from from going there because they're also they were also very concerned of my security they did not the last thing they mm-hmm. wanted was for another journalist to be to be to be kidnapped because that's it's right. going to be another headache right um, but then again he's in a yeah, place where like military can't go right yes so uh, it's also he is in a place where um the military cannot go. So he assured me himself, uh, Commander Noor, Professor Noor, that he was going to take care of my security. And he, I did it. I, I took the leap and I went there and I got out. And, you know, he was, he was he really was able to, to live up to his word, but it wasn't easy. So I think it took me a while to really recover from that, you know. But when the story finally came out, it was quite a shock because no one had seen him in so many years, right? Because there were worries about his health or there were rumors about whether he had died, you know, and, and so that one. So and then another story that really struck me too was in Marawi, you know. It was a five-month-long war. We were going there back and forth for five months. Most of the time I spent my time there. But there was a story uh, in the early days of the conflict um, when we joined state forces, police basically, to um, uh, collect bodies of those who have died in some of the areas, in particular this area, uh, right where uh, the Maute were were hiding before uh, the siege Mm -hmm. broke out. And there was this... uh, when we, we walked through this small street, there was this alley, like a garage or some of some sort at that time. And um, there were bodies of, of dead women, you know. Uh, they were still wearing their usual um, Muslim garb, Muslim clothing. You know, they had their headscarves. They were shot and their faces were, uh, they were face down in the mud, right? So there were about five or six female bodies like lying entangled in this dark small alley and there was a body of a little girl you know and and her and mm-hmm. her her she her her face was also uh on the mud like she was um facing the mud uh she sorry she was lying down um and she looked like she was hiding behind a, a dead woman right when they were shot she was wow. very close to the wall. So um, so I saw it, and I, for a moment, I was quite shocked because they are, you know, they were decaying, right? And, um, and I was quite struck by, by the body of this, of this little girl. And um, I said, uh, I asked the police officer, I said, uh, who, what happened to them? And he said, ma'am, they, you know, identity is unknown, right? So for days, I couldn't forget about this girl. Like, I was just thinking about how her shoes, because she wore pink shoes, and the shoes, despite all the mud and the blood, and unfortunately, the, the creatures that were trying to eat some of their bodies alive, her shoes were still shiny and, and sparkly, right? Wow. And it struck me, in a parang, wow, how, why is it so clean and whatever? And it gave me kind of an imagined idea of how her world was like before, before they were killed, you know? And um, mm-hmm. maybe two weeks after that, 
So it bothered me for a few days. I wrote the story and everything. And then maybe two weeks after that, I did another story on visiting. And we decided to visit the morgues in Iligan, which is the biggest city closest to Marawi. And, um, and the idea was for me to look at how many bodies were being brought in from Marawi and how are all these um, funeral homes coping with it, right? And how are bodies being uh, 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 processed, right? And whether there's the identification of the dead. And these are, these are very, very important um, stories to do even at the start of uh, when a war breaks out because this is something that, pains and haunts civilians for many, many years. Those who continue missing, those who were not able to bury their loved ones, those who are not even able to give their loved ones any dignity. You can't find closure. And this is when war, you know, makes it so difficult for people to heal and move on. It's the missing persons, it's the recovery of uh -huh. bodies. It takes decades. So uh, weeks later, I did visit to one of the morgues and I saw bodies lined up and I saw a small casket, you know, like one of those wooden improvised caskets. And they were made simply because I guess they already ran out of, of, um, of, of coffins, right? So they were going to be brought in for a mass burial in one of the cemeteries in Iligan. So I asked the embalmer, I said, can you open, can you open the small casket? I don't know. I just felt like I don't normally do this, JP. I don't ask them to open caskets, you know, for me to see. And okay. I just, it struck me. I said, could, could I see? Can, can you please show me what's inside? Who's inside? And they opened it and it was her, right? And I did not see her anymore wow. because they wrapped, oh my God. they wrapped her nicely in this white cloth plastic, but they put her shoes on top of it, right? And... And her shoes oh were God, there no. looking at me. And, you know, like I said, because I vlogged about <laughs> it, when I saw that she was being given um, a decent burial, perhaps most likely she was Muslim, I felt like a very grateful relative that, you know, somehow there is dignity for them. That I, I you know what I mean, that we'll never know uh, who she was or how she lived her life with her mom or whether that woman she was holding on to when she was shot was probably her mother or she was hiding from the... You know, it's, it's, you have all these imagined ideas in your head about realities that they lived in. The only sure thing is that their lives have been cut short by this terrible, terrible war. And no one can ever... Wow bring them back alive, right, anymore. But the idea of them being given this very small, this small act of dignity and courage and kindness, that helps you, you know, believe that somehow the work, um, it, there, there is still goodness and there is still so much work that needs to be done. So, you know, that really affected me so much. And I couldn't really write about that, the, the kid and the girl and, and the, the women up until months later. I was only able to blog about it months later. But that also propelled me to bring Sinag Tala into Marawi and to start really mm -hmm. aggressively opening. I did see that, that you, you started it right after the whole Marawi saga, no? Well, I did when it was, no, I did it when it was still happening. We were sending aid to different areas as bombs were falling incessantly. We opened seven toy libraries across Lano del Sur in a span of three months. Is this months. with Edsel, the toy, toy library? No, 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 no. We, this Philippine is a scenic No, no, we didn't. We, we did, I did it with the Philippine Navy. I did it with okay, the Philippine right. Navy. 
So we they were helping us with 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 the distribution and security, and then and then we opened the weaving center right at the heart of Marawi at the Lanao capital, provincial capital, and that's where we decided to start this weaving uh, project as a psychosocial you know intervention for these women. And also the weaving idea came from one of my visits in some of the evacuation centers, and I came across several displaced weavers, and they said, "What happened?" So they said, "Oh, like this." So we decided, okay, this is going to be a good psychosocial intervention for these women and then we have very small funds at that time so we said you know if you learn how to weave we can teach you and then if you come here to the center because they're all displaced you can come here you can get food for free and then we can pay for whatever you learn and we can give you your kits for free and stuff like that so you know though these two stories the the sulu experience mostly because the danger was so um so i i'm sorry the sulu experience really shook me because of the physical danger and and the Marawi story mm-hmm. hurt me in a way because I was a parent and I can can only imagine the grief of these families and 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 also as a Filipino you know because you know when people say oh we've won the war well really nobody wins in the war you know you've got both sides suffering you've got families from both sides losing loved ones and you can never bring those back you've got homes destroyed lives interrupted perhaps suspended indefinitely. And you can still see that up to now. That's why, um, to, to, to basically conclude about this, I, I always said that we will only know who really won the war in Marawi maybe five years from now, six years from now, when we actually see if lives have actually really, truly improved for the better. If we have actually capacitated, apart from just winning the battle, it is actually improving the lives of people. That, to me, is the biggest arbiter, I guess, uh, or or measure uh, in which we can sorry it's the biggest uh, sorry this is the real true test in which mm-hmm. we can measure whether actually war has been won or has been successful because from my experience as a journalist it's never really a success because everybody loses every single Filipino death is a collective tragedy for us as a country you know when you see Filipinos. Mm-hmm. You know, on on different sides fighting each other. That's that's uh, that's that's yeah. devastating. For sure. And how do you do? You still get afraid, like when you're actually there and covering all of these things. Is fear still something that sort of informs your movement, or do you go into these areas just with pure adrenaline and you just start feeling the fear after you come home? That's a very good question. It's very hard to say um, exactly. It depends on the conflict, you know. For example, you do over the years have these built-up mechanisms to, to that help you, uh, that propel you. First, there's the physical exhaustion, right? You need to be able to surpass that because you cannot, you know, if you're working 12 days straight with like three hours of sleep and you don't eat properly, then it's bound to affect you. It slows you down. It affects your your, your your visions and your focus. But for me, I get afraid. And I think it's it's a very important tool as a journalist for people who go to front lines, humanitarian workers, soldiers. It fear is is you need fear that sorry, you need fear because it can guide you with your decision-making process. For example, we go as a team. 
And when I make a decision, I cannot simply make a decision for everyone. Are we going to go in? Are we going to back up? Are we going to push for this? Are we going to embed with rebels? This is a collective decision we have to make. But obviously, as a team leader, I have to be extra careful with my decisions. I need to know that everyone is on board, that we all understand the danger. And if somebody doesn't feel comfortable, we don't push through. Yes, there is adrenaline. It does help you get through very, very difficult days and hours. Um, but it, it's a combination of many things, JP. It's adrenaline. It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's instinct. It's um, curiosity. Um, this feeling of outrage is also important, that you are outraged about the situation and you want to get to the bottom of it of a disaster, of a conflict, you know, so it's a mix of everything. But yes, I do get afraid. And you know what? I did develop, which is oddly enough, a turbulence phobia. So I have turbulence phobia. Well, I'm sort of recovering from that now, In, you know, airplane phobia. When there's airplane turbulence, turbulence. Yes, I've developed, I think, JB, what they call an airplane turbulence phobia which is very funny because I've never okay. had it before. And I go on a plane, I sleep right away. But I had one incident in Indonesia where, you know, we, we almost crashed. And that made me kind of a, you oh, know, wow. a nervous flyer. So uh, we were heading into covering the tsunami, I think almost a year and a half ago in Palu. And the plane just dropped. Like there was an air pocket. So we just kind of dropped and everyone was like... Allahu Akbar, you know, they were, they were so shocked at the sudden drop of the plane. And it was fine, but it kind of shook me because perhaps also at that time I was already very tired. I had been on the road for about a month. So since then, any single turbulence, I feel I just kind of like become a bit um, nervous about it. But I, it's getting better. So I don't really get... Um, I don't really panic in many rebel-held areas, but sometimes small sounds make me, whoa, what's that, you know? <laughs> make me, like, jump up. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you prepare for all of these stories that you do? It seems like you're jumping from one story to the next. And especially in the Philippines, there's always breaking news. There's always something happening. How do you prepare for something like interviewing Nur Miswari while he's hiding out in in a camp in Sulu. How how does how's the process from from inception all the way to actually getting there? How do you prepare for all of these all of these stories? No, parang you're jumping from one story to the other, and you know, in a country like the Philippines, there's always breaking news. Like just, I mean, we were supposed to do this interview last week, and then bilan lang oh, the terror bill was signed, and then and then there's yeah. CBN, and then. But like stories, for instance, like interviewing Normi Suari, how do you go prepare for that? I think a lot of people don't don't sort of see the preparation that's necessary in order to to do journalism like that. First, if you're going to a dangerous area, you need to get as much information as you can about the area you're going to. You need to know who the players are on the ground. You need to know who you can trust, and you should you should be careful of. Um, you need to prepare your comms uh, yourself and to get as much information as possible also about your subject. So you get all of those things uh, uh, ready and the rest, you just hope for the best, you know, because sometimes things don't really move the way you want it to be. So that's when instinct comes, right? That's when your 
training after many, many years of being in a conflict situation comes in where, where you need to be able to get yourself out there, extract it, extract yourself if you have, must do it your, on your own, um, and find ways to, to keep yourselves uh, and your team safe, right? So um, if these are political stories, then they're not too difficult to, to manage, meaning, you know, you need to just really, really study and prepare and understand the stories, and the complexities of each story, but going to a dangerous area or a difficult area needs much more, and you need almost all of your senses ready and mm -hmm. aligned. Um, voila, you just kind of become like you move from one idea to the next and you move from one preparation to the next. You need to be very adaptable to a situation. You can't be rigid. You know what I mean? Way, you can't say, oh, I'm... Journalists, when you cover all of these stories, you, you have to be semi-experts in all of them, but not really super experts in all of them. No? So parang, you know a little bit of something of, of each story that you're actually doing. So in a way, you've actually been studying all these people, all of these situations. It's, I mean, for me, it's, it's really interesting no, to see that because you sort of have this broad knowledge of everything as journalists. It's really interesting how journalists sort of have this sort of broad knowledge about everything, no? but you're not experts in anything in particular except for journalism. But you do have lots of little bits of knowledge for for everything and all of these people and all of these stories that you actually tell. No, but you're you're constantly in school essentially. You're you're constantly studying situations, people, environments, and all of these things. I mean, you have to be a news junkie to be a journalist. You can't, you can't say, oh, I, I want to become a journalist, and you don't read the news, right? Mm -hmm. And it becomes like second nature to you. And after having covered you know, a patch or a beat for a while, then you, you start to acquire a particular kind of knowledge, a set of, of knowledge and skills and contacts, um, which also help you with your reports. So being knowledgeable is important, but I think what's also important is to not be so rigid or fixed in your idea of what the story is when you go and start to do it. I think you need to have some sort of um, an openness within you, the willingness to listen and say, well, from where I stood, this is how it looked like, but maybe that's not what it seems now, looking at, you know, have, after having gathered uh, as many information as possible. I think the, the most difficult kind of journalists or the most difficult trait as a journalist that we should avoid is to always have these preconceived notions of how the stories are like already based on the patterns because each story they although they may be intertwined sorry because each stories sorry because if sorry because stories okay. may be intertwined because stories may be intertwined mm -hmm. but they are still quite different in terms of context so right. the openness is important the ability to accept that yes Maybe my initial impression is not wrong. So here, let me listen to it. Let me get a bigger picture. And, you know, they, they in basketball, they say it's peripheral vision, right? Like a really good point guard is someone who can see, a, you know, has very good peripheral vision. You can say, I'm going to pass the ball to, you know, the center, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with journalism. You need to be able to see the big picture, and not be so caught up with just one angle alone. Or, you know, it also remember that no matter what, you have a real responsibility to do stories for the for for the impoverished, for those who are in the fringes, right? It is important. It's important to get every side of the story, but mm -hmm. even more important to allow 
a much bigger space for those who have much less because that is our duty as journalists. When there is a story between the landlords and the landless, you know, then it's important for us to, yes, interview the landowners, but equally important, and if not more important, to give voice to those who have lost their land, those whose lands were taken away from them. This is, this is important. This, this is, is a moral compass. Because I, I was reading about you, and I read that when you were much younger, land was taken away from your family, and you, you basically had to move to Manila. Is this something that sort of informs this type of advocacy, this type of work that you that you do giving voice to the yeah. to the the fringes. Well, you know, I mean, it was my my mom and my grandparents who moved out of of Tikao um in B, from Bicol and moved to Manila, but me essentially I was kind of brainwashed by my grandmother to become a lawyer, to be a human mm-hmm. rights lawyer because you know, people they lose land all the time and their land get taken away from them or they're forced to sell at a very cheap price. So I was made to believe that I was going to be a lawyer. And, and then I went, you know, I, I went to FEU and I became a sportscaster. And, and that kind of helped me with my expenses at school because UAAP, the student in UAAP actually paid well enough at that time. And, and then I discovered that actually I do like writing more. And um, I joined the school paper. And voila, here we are. Here you so, are, yes, Al Jazeera. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's important also that it doesn't matter... Uh, whether you become a lawyer or you become a humanitarian worker, or even so, which is more fun, it's actually have a podcast, right? right. Um, it doesn't matter what we really do, um, whether you're working behind the scenes or in front of the camera. What is important is to always be guided by the certain moral compass that we need. Diba? Yun yung pinakamahalaga talaga. Yung pakiramdam natin na ginagawa natin yung tama at ginagawa natin na hindi lang para sa pangsarili lang natin. Kasi how how difficult just, is that now, though? Parang, how difficult is it to be, to be like that, to have this strong moral compass in this time, this time of fake news, trolls? And, and for you, no? like as a woman, you've, you've probably gotten more trolled than the men oh, yeah. in, in journalism. Parang, I just got trolled again today. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so I mean it's 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 a really difficult time, no, for journalists and, and like in the last maybe six years, every administration has been essentially um antagonistic to journalists, whether it's yeah. Aquino or Duterte, they've never liked mm. them because you write bad stories about them. But yeah. uh but well, how difficult is it relative. now? <laughs> um look you know, it is exhausting, right? So when you're getting attacked uh, for reasons you don't know about, then it's kind of like in 2016 when I started getting trolled a lot, I was at first very disoriented because I've never had that kind of experience where it's, you know, online attacks or, you know, real online threats of physical harm are, are, were being sent to me for, you know, for, for simply doing my job, for simply reporting the facts. But very, very quickly, JP, you kind of get over the shock and awe, and then you realize that actually, you know, that was all of those um, attempts, all of those attacks were attempts to distract you from doing your job. That was Mm -hmm. it, right? So I went through a period of kind of confusion, um, and then I've recovered, and I I just focus on my stories. I just make sure that I do, you know, 
the stories as factually as fair as possible, and 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 I give voice to to those people. Um, this pandemic makes it particularly even more difficult. When I mentioned earlier that it's important to make a connection when you go to a disaster area or um, a conflict zone, it's very difficult to make that connection when you know you're physically not allowed to go to these areas. Or when you do, there's a certain physical distance you have to maintain. I mean, people who work with me, you know, my cameraman, uh, our producer, the driver, they know that I tend to hold people, like, physically. Like, I hold their hand. Or, you know, it's just my instinct to touch and to get close and to touch them on their backs or on their shoulders. You know what I mean? You can't mm -hmm. do that now. And you That's can't right. even really easily go to places where the pandemic, you know, is a, like, you know, where is at, sorry, you can't really easily just go to hospitals and make that connection. Mm -hmm. That's one. Number two, if you go, you're wearing a PPE suit and a face shield. You know, you try to make an eye connection. You try to smile, but how do you smile behind the mask? Exactly. Right? It really separates you. you know? It really does separate you. So it's, it was at first very difficult. And then you realize that you really just have to try extra hard to make that connection. Because it's important to make that kind of connection when you do your stories. And eventually, we kind of got used to that. So this, I think the physical distance made it particularly difficult at first to cover and work and do stories during the time of the pandemic. Now, for example, you know that even if you want to go to um, up north to do a story, you can't easily do that because of restrictions. Exactly. Not just... Uh, for yourself, but also the kind of physical harm you may inadvertently give others, right? So that's one. Now, another issue there is, you know, when you go to conflict zones and you put yourself in harm's way, whether you did it on purpose or not, you know that your families, your loved ones are safe at home. And you know that whether something physically, something bad happens to you, whether you're hurt, that you're the only one who's physically hurt, that your home is safe, uh, that people, your loved ones are safe, this pandemic makes everyone vulnerable. So even when yeah. you work, you have to be very careful that you don't bring harm to, uh, to those you love the most. So that's, that's hard. Trying to stay alive physically is also not difficult. Trying not to get sick um, is important because if you get sick, then everything else stops. You're not able to work. You're not able to function. So the pandemic puts... J journalists in an even more difficult position. It doesn't mean we're not able to report. I mean, clearly, everything is quite noisy. Reports still continue. But you tend to work under very different circumstances. People say it's new normal, possibly. I, I, hope, I hope this is not permanent. I hope mm -hmm. this is just a phase. And slowly, we will find a way to go back to how we did our work, but better. Do you know what I mean? Right. We hope that we will start to do whatever it is that we do with a completely different picture of how the world should be, with an even stronger sense of outrage and compassion and kindness and purpose, right? Because the pandemic actually shook everyone to the core. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, but also it's particularly harder on the poor, right? Of course. So, of course. you know, everyone has been affected, the economy, business security, nature, for example, so I hope that when we go back to a certain kind of sequence or pattern, that it won't be the same, but it will be for the better. I hope so. And um, how about, let, tell me about Sinagtala. No? I know you, you've, you've 
built this as your passion project. And mm. what made you really think of putting it together and growing it um, into what it is now? No, it's been what five years or six years that you've you've had Sinagtala. Yeah. That's a very interesting question because the very first story assignment I did shortly after I got out of my maternity leave, I had to go back to work when my son was only three months old and I, I knew I had to do it already. So I kind of prepared myself for it. And one of the assignments I did was to go to Basilan and to do a story on, you know, children who are uh, people who were once child soldiers. And I was also quite affected with, again, my first exposure to, um, difficulties and grief and pain shortly after my maternity leave, shortly after my son was born. So I was a bit affected by it. And, you know, it's Sinagtala is, is in a way very much intertwined with my work as a journalist and also my role as a mom. In many situations, JP, I always feel as though I, I feel very guilty when I leave my loved ones at home so I can go somewhere and work. And at the same time, I also feel guilty when I have to leave the people I meet and go back to the comforts of my home. Um, the, the work that I do, and I do have partners in Sinagtala, mm-hmm. we have uh, people who are with us on the ground, help me kind of deal with that guilt, right? It makes me feel just a little bit better that, you know, I'm not just leaving them and going back to the comforts of my home, or I'm not just leaving my son and going to meet strangers and, and leaving him with, 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 with his dad, for example, with you know relatives at home, right? So there's a lot of pressure as a mom. But in a way, it kind of, this one helped fill the gap, right? Mm-hmm. And so there. And, and what are the projects now of Sinagtala? I know you have weaving. You have, um, yeah. you sell all of these beautifully woven products all over the country. And is there, what are the other projects that you have uh, that you yeah. started? Well, unfortunately, because of this pandemic, we've had to we've had to close operations in Marawi, and the center, is, I, I believe, is going to be used for persons under monitoring or those with suspected uh, those who have sus- suspected COVID infections. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we've kind of stopped, and we're looking at a possibly doing allowing the women to weave from the comforts of their home and not really have a physical center at the moment. Um, just. Uh, before the lockdown, oh, just, uh, I'm sorry. And then we were o- about to open Sinagtala in Sulum. Oh, wow. We were all set up to open in Luok. And the idea was to work with and provide interventions for women, widows, and daughters of slain militants. Those whose mm. you know, husbands or brothers have died in the war from the rebel side. And we wanted to do the same kind of psychosocial intervention. And, you know, we were all ready to do this already. The center was ready in partnership with the Marines and the local government of the Oak. And then the shutdown happened, you know. So it's, uh, sorry, not shutdown. That's ABS. Take that out. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> covering too much ABS. And then the lockdown happened. So now we are, we don't know yet when we can start this. But I know that as soon as things um, become much more stable, then we'll be able to continue this project. How how difficult was it for you to start working with all of these women? And I know I have many Muslim friends, and in general, the the women in their communities tend to be a bit more reserved and a bit more difficult to to sort of get to the table to start working. And how was it that? Of course, you're a woman; that probably makes it easier. Um, but 
is there like a process that you followed getting getting working with all of these uh, women? I think for anyone, trust is really the most important factor, right? You need mm-hmm. to be able to show them that you're not a partisan uh, force, that you are there to help, and that they are also a major contributor to their own progress. Um, the thing about humanitarian work is often there's always this feeling that, you know, those who are receiving aid feel much more mendicant. The important thing about Sinagtala and what we do is that we always tell them that you need to capacitate and, and build yourself so that you are the major player in rebuilding your lives, right? So when they started to teach them how to weave, you know, we said to them, just weave. It doesn't matter what happens, uh, whether you it is a good pattern or not. Just allow that process um, to take over you. You know, so they were learning how to weave as bombs were falling just outside, you know, uh, wow. the building we were in. It's very bizarre, right? So, and when we were doing this, uh, started this tr- program, I would be out covering, you know, uh, the stories that we're doing that day. And before going back to Iligan, I would stop by the center where these women were staying, and I would. And, you know, after 5 p.m., normally, 5 or 6, it's kind of the slow period of the bomb runs, right, mm-hmm. of the military. Mm-hmm. So there will be, it will be a quieter period. And, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> it will be a quieter period. And I could really remember the swishing sounds of, of, the, of the inaul, of the, of the aul, the, 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 the looms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I thought that was really, really very satisfying. And then, you know, it takes trust, and not just trust, uh, on you, but also to trust themselves that they are actually are capable of rebuilding their lives on their own. There was a period when they did not want to weave black because they said black reminded them of the maute. And we encouraged them to weave black, to allow black to, make, to be mixed with the other colors that they like because so that they can weave their own story that what happened to them shouldn't define them, you know, permanently. And that they should be able to take that narrative back from the maute, for example, or not just Maute or whatever force they felt took away took that sense of dignity away from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So those kinds of things, it takes a lot of time and effort. It's really that. a but lot of them, a really passion project. And it's amazing that yeah. you've you've sort of mixed in weaving and therapy in a way, you know, that uh, f- for them and for yourself as well, I, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was also, in a way, helping me, right, Um, deal with my own frustrations with the coverage in Marawi, you know, the difficulty with getting access, the fog of war, propaganda, sifting through the propaganda, sifting through propaganda from both sides. I mean, those things can also be exhausting. And plus, it's quite an unusually long siege. It's five months, right? So after a while, there's already fatigue, even from viewers. So there's this constant pressure even i put on myself i guess to actually find ways to tell the story differently you mm-hmm. know that it's not always about what is in the end of the gun barrel or you know the bravado or whatever or the violence but also about people so i think it also helped me but the most important thing in whatever it is that we do is to be sincere in what we do because you can't really fake it you can't do it sorry you can't be consistent with something that you are not. So you need to remind yourself that, you know, sincerity is very important. And mm-hmm. people that you connect with and that you meet can actually sense that sincerity quite easily. So 
as a as a talented journalist, no, and you've worked with with Al Jazeera for quite a long time now, thirteen years. You've worked with Al Jazeera for a long time. I'm sure you've had opportunities to work abroad, no, to basically do sort of the dream job working with uh, I don't know if it's Al Jazeera or whatever international news news agency. Why have you stayed? Well, first, uh, well, I guess I haven't really uh, received any offer that would really make me feel excited about leaving the Philippines at the moment. Mm -hmm. I also think that I am in in good position because I'm Filipino and I tell the stories of my own country, of my own people, and that helps with context a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, It's home, you know, and... And, you know, I always wondered, like, at some point I had, you know, an offer, an interesting offer to move to another place. But it's always the question where you need to be someplace. I realized, and and, and an advice I got from an old friend said, if you are thinking of moving somewhere else or you don't know where where you want to go, always remember that you have to be where you are most needed. And I think that's important. You know, where am I most needed? Where can I be more effective? At this point, I think it's in the Philippines, given the current situation. I mean, FOCAP even is an act of defiance. Being a FOCAP president uh, is in a way demented and also difficult, but also in a way an act of defiance that you take on a job knowing that given the current situation and the and and the, and the context of, of the things that are happening with ABS and Rappler, you know, it, you always think like, do I really need to take this job again, or do I have to do this again? Or it would be so much easier to just not do this and to just do something else. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Go back to my favorite hobby in the past, which was horseback riding, which I can't do anymore because you know it's no longer possible. But you know, you take on the challenge, right? And you just remind yourself that maybe the, this is the time or this period tells me that this is what I have to do and this is where I have to be. So when you don't know where I have to be, I found that the answer is I have to be in the Philippines because I'm most needed here. Oh, that's perfect. I think um, you said it perfectly. And and for many people, I think, even including myself, I've also had some opportunities to go. And yeah. that's exactly what it is, you know, to to be where you're most needed. So where? Where do you need to be? Where do you feel you need to be at this moment? Where are you most needed? That was such an inspiring conversation with Jamela. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I say this every single time. And it's true. Every single time I'm I'm completely inspired by the people I talk to. I learn so much uh, from all of them. And their words, their work... Um, especially someone like Jamela who goes into the war zone just to tell the stories just to tell those stories that are important just to tell the stories of the disenfranchised those who have much much less in life than we do and these are the stories that need to be told and she and many other journalists like her are out there every single day telling these important stories and it's really sad now really I think that in this time there's so much debasement of their work when you know 
they are doing such important work shining a light on the stories that need to be told and I'm really thankful that she stayed in the Philippines that she thought that this was where she was needed so thank you everyone for listening to this episode with Jamela and if you haven't please it really helps this podcast please follow us on Spotify Apple Podcasts Stitcher Google we're on practically every platform now share this episode with your friends share it with your loved ones um, we need people to listen to to the people I'm talking to like Jamela for instance or Prasanjit all of them have something to say nobody has nothing to say really after 20 episodes I've realized that everyone has something important to add to the conversation and it's all up to us to listen thank you for listening to the wildcast next week on the wildcast I have a special guest I talked to a former beauty queen Kat Trevino, who not only was in the top 10 of the Miss Philippines pageant, but also is a coder. She's a marketing director. She has so many, so many, so many jobs that you need to really look past how beautiful she is to see what a talent you're getting. And really excited to have all of you listen to that conversation with Kat And looking forward to another episode of The Wildcast. Thank you for listening.